is Acts chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people to be a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnants of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore... My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, 
both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they, went, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The word of the Lord. Be to God. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your sovereign word. Uh, thank you for the way it deals so honestly with the realities of life. We pray, gracious God, that you would be pleased to send your spirit upon us this morning, uh, that you would open our ears and our hearts and give us grace, Father, to hear exactly what you want us to hear and give us wills, we pray, to obey. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. I said uh, several weeks ago that I've had church planting on the brain, and uh, that is absolutely true. And one of the reasons I, I thought it would be a good time to visit again Acts uh, chapter 11 through 15 is because it deals so directly with the issues around church planting, both some of the challenges and some of the opportunities. And I've enjoyed very much revisiting what the book of Acts has to say about church planting. Let's be very clear Churches are called to be church-planting churches. And I've tried very hard to make that case based on what I think we see here in the book of Acts. Uh, so it's been on my brain, and I've preached through it. Uh, I'm discovering, however, that Acts 11 through 15 doesn't just deal with church planting. It doesn't just deal with mission. It deals with those things. And I've tried as best as I've been able to touch on those things and to visit some of the things God's Word has to say about church planting. But providentially, <laughs> providentially, Acts 11 through 15 has a lot also to say about the reality of conflict in the life of the church. Now, I don't believe I have to convince you that there is such a thing as conflict in the life 
of the church. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a church that never had any conflict. Anybody know? Because when you get people together, when you get fallen, sinful human beings together, the kind of human beings Josh helped us to acknowledge we are as we prayed the prayer of confession, when we get together, it is inevitable that there will be conflict. I know I don't have to convince you, but let me give you a little bit of important biblical evidence. And I think this is significant. When you read the book of Acts, you hear a lot about the successes of the church. You hear a lot about the things they did right. But the thing I find fascinating, the thing I find exciting in a funny sort of way, is how honestly the book of Acts deals with their failures and with their challenges and with the things that didn't go the way that they thought they would go. They deal really, really transparently about some really difficult things. You know, there is a kind of hagiographical writing which just glosses right over problems. And if the book of Acts was simply written to, you know, sort of present perfect people who never made mistakes, it failed miserably. Because like in the Gospels, where it was Peter who betrayed Christ, so we see here in the book of Acts that it was Paul who led the charge to martyr the first martyr. And again and again, Acts deals in this incredibly transparent way about some of the difficulties that we face in church life. And so, as it happens, Acts chapter 15 deals very specifically with conflict. Look at how it begins. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. There was a debate. There was this intense discussion. No small debate. No small dissension. I love that understated way of describing it. It, it must have been quite an intensive uh, discussion and quite an intense debate that Luke is describing. And, and it's acknowledged. It happened. And it wasn't just a couple of verses. Look a bit further down. Uh, look down at um, verse 5. This is what happens when Paul and Barnabas make their way from Antioch to uh, Jerusalem. Look what happens in verse 5. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them. I love <laughs> I mean, they're not beating around the bush. It's necessary to order them to keep the law of Moses. So there was this debate. Of course, we've seen glimpses of it uh, before. The reason Barnabas went to Antioch was because there was a debate. It was a discussion. They weren't sure what to make of this new openness among the Gentiles. There were Gentiles turning to the Lord, and that was confusing. It was a new thing, and we've talked a little bit about that. And so Acts chapter 15 deals really openly with that. It's, it's refreshing to see it be so transparent 
about the reality of conflict. It is real. And uh, this chapter goes on to describe the give and take of that debate. It shows the different roles that Peter had to play, and then Paul and Barnabas, and finally James, the brother of the Lord, James the Just, who led the church in Jerusalem with a special kind of almost unique authority. And uh, the, in, in the way these individuals were involved in this ongoing debate. Uh, it's not only Acts, however. It's interesting. I'll flip, if you would, over a few pages to Galatians. Because it wasn't just Luke in the book of Acts who was transparent. Look over at Galatians chapter 2 on page 972 in the, in the Pew Bible. And look down the page. I guess it's over at the top of page 973. You'll see how the ESV editors have headed this section. Paul opposes Peter. Now just take that in for a moment. St. Paul opposes St. Peter. Look at verse 11. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatia. He says, when Cephas, that's another name for Peter, is one of his uh, other names, a Greek name, came to Antioch. Oh, a little light bulb goes off, right? Antioch. Paul is writing to the church in Antioch, sorry, the church in Galatia, one of the Gentile churches, about uh, Cephas, Peter coming to Antioch, the mother of church planting churches. When that happened, Paul says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came back, when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This was a big debate. It went on in various contexts. It wasn't just one isolated event. It was something that was a part of Paul's ministry. As a matter of fact, all of Paul's letters show evidence of responding to this pro-circumcision, pro-Jewish way of thinking of the gospel. And so basically all of Paul's letters, at least in part, are motivated by his desire to engage that teaching, to debate with those who espouse that theology. And here's an example of, of Paul confronting the rock on whom Jesus said he'd build his church. I mean, I don't know, I, I don't know what Paul looked like, but the, the pictures I have in my mind are of a not a particularly big guy talking to this strapping fisherman. He spoke to his face and said the words that are recorded. Conflict in the church is something the Bible acknowledges from the beginning. It's 
not something that we should be surprised by. It's not something that should throw us. The Bible acknowledges it. Here we see a very momentous question. We see a question of great significance. The reason you and I can be Christians today is because of the debate that Paul and Peter and James and Barnabas and the church in the first century, they were debating this. They were struggling to understand. And they had conflict about it. And the reason you and I who have, like, if you're like me and you have Gentile ancestors, then the reason we're able to worship Jesus, the reason we're able to be in the church today is because of the debate they had then. Their willingness to enter into this conflict, their willingness to risk everything relationally to deal with a very important question. So here it is, an example of a momentous question. They're not always momentous. (laughs) Flip back over to Acts chapter 15. I read to you most of Acts chapter 15, but actually it doesn't close with Paul and Barnabas remaining in Antioch and teaching and preaching, it actually goes on to say more. And it turns out, guess what? There's conflict. Look at verse 36. I didn't read this part for you, but on page 924 it says, After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now that sounds like an innocuous request. That sounds very pastoral. Paul said to Barnabas, let's do that. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Apparently Paul had some concerns about John Mark and whether he could be depended on in a tough situation. So they were talking about that. But look what happens. Verse 39. There arose a sharp disagreement. Now they've just been through this momentous debate in Jerusalem with all the apostles and all the elders gathered there and making this momentous decision of which you and I are beneficiaries. And Paul and Barnabas had been there and they've gone back to Antioch and now they get into conflict. And it's not over something momentous. It's over who's going to go with them as they go and visit all the church plants they've been planting. I mean, you'd think they could work that out in five minutes. As a matter of fact, later on, we actually see Paul has been restored to John Mark in his relationship. And the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, that's this guy. Mark wasn't all bad. But it's, it's so interesting to me that they, they have this big debate, they have this sharp disagreement, and it says in the verse 39... They separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. That's where Barnabas was from. Verse 40, but but Paul chose Silas. He's mentioned earlier in Acts 15. He chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, which was pretty much Paul's stomping ground. Cilicia is where Tarsus was. So he goes there and he is strengthening the the church. So it's interesting. 
Acts goes out of its way to record the reality of conflict in the church. Of course, uh, it's not just the Bible that talks about the reality of conflict. Church history. You know, we've got 2,000 years of church history. Well, you might have noticed occasionally in the history of the church, there's been conflict. As a matter of fact, all the ecumenical councils that seminarians pour over, cult, embrace yourself for church history. You're going to have to memorize all these church councils. They're called the ecumenical councils. As Presbyterians, we acknowledge the first seven uh, as particularly important because they help resolve momentous questions. And every one of these ecumenical councils represent conflict. And for all the ecumenical ones that are famous, there were dozens of less famous ones. And right through church history, you see this reality of conflict that the church has to deal with. Of course, you and I are beneficiaries of another conflict you might have heard about. We celebrated it October 31st. It's called the Reformation. And you and I are sitting here today calling ourselves Presbyterian and not Roman Catholic because of church conflict. There was this momentous debate between people, Christians, people who called themselves Christians, who wanted, they said, to honor Jesus. And there was this huge pitch debate as Presbyterians. As Presbyterians, we know something about conflict in the church. Uh, I was recently referred uh, to um, a book by uh, J. Gresham Machen called Machen, sorry, a book uh, about Machen by John Frame uh, from Reformed Seminary. John Frame wrote a book called Machen's Warrior Children. Machen's Warrior Children. And John Frame takes pains to walk through the long history of conflict within Presbyterianism. And even today, if you look around the landscape, you will find a wide variety, a dizzying variety of Presbyterian churches because Presbyterians are not immune to church conflict. Church history makes it abundantly clear that church conflict is a reality. But you know what? You don't have to go to seminary to or, or do an intensive Bible study to know that church conflict exists because not only does church history give evidence of the reality of conflict, Metrocrest church history has a little something to say about the reality of conflict. Now, I'm a newcomer here. I've only been here a couple of years. But I've heard from old timers at Metrocrest who talk sometimes with tears in their eyes about the reality of conflict in the church how painful it can be. There are people sitting here right now who know all about that. You've you've lived through it, and somehow you've stayed. You know what it's like. So I don't have to convince you, but there's a lot of evidence if you want to look around and see about the reality of conflict. Why is there conflict in the church? I mean, every once in a while you'll bump into a question where it's clearly heresy versus the truth. But very often, very often, it can sometimes appear as though it's, well, it's issues that aren't very momentous that can cause conflict. 
Why? Why in a, in a church, in an organization that is intentionally centered on unity in Christ, that is intentionally centered on the kind of uh, loving relationship that is described in the Bible but between those who know and love Jesus, why is there so much conflict? Well, I'm going to toss out a, a couple of different reasons why I think there's so much conflict. Um, I've got three of them here. One is we're all different. Paul was different from Peter. Paul was maybe a, something like a bookish academic. I can vouch for that because you may have heard I'm taking Greek. And uh, Paul's Greek writing is very dense. You don't study Greek and in your first semester have much to do with Paul. Paul was a scholar. He was different from Peter. Peter was a fisherman. I'm not saying Peter was uneducated, but he wasn't well-educated. He wasn't someone who, like Paul, had studied at the feet of Gamaliel. So they were different. So is it surprising that there would be conflict and differences occasionally? Paul was different from Barnabas. Barnabas was from Cyprus. Paul was from Tarsus. Uh, They had different backgrounds. They had different life experiences. The suggestion seems to be that Barnabas had some money. He had some money to give to the church. Paul worked as a tent maker with his hands. He explicitly described his working with his hands to support himself so that the church didn't have to. He wasn't wealthy. Barnabas appears to have had some means. Paul was different from John Mark. We're not told much about it. John Mark was younger, apparently. They were different. They were different people. And we're all different people. So one of the reasons that conflict is a reality in the church is because we're all different. Um, Diane, I'm going to embarrass uh, Diane Kazara once more. Diane is just completing her studies to be a counselor and is now actively involved in uh, counseling. Um, She's going to try to help us put together a marriage program next year, God willing. Um, Have you ever heard of the Myers-Briggs test? Yes, she nodded. Uh, Let me tell you this, you can't go to seminary without bumping into the Myers-Briggs test, okay? The Myers-Briggs test, which was a a tool used to help people understand the differences in human temperament. And it's a widely used uh, model for sort of gauging where people are coming from and how they're wired. People, let me tell you, according to Myers-Briggs, are very, very different. If you know anything about Myers-Briggs, maybe at work or at school you've done it before. If not, it's an interesting tool. Uh, It's not magic, but it it is an interesting tool to help understand how people are wired differently. The the book that sort of popularizes is called Please Understand Me, and the idea is it's actually written with a Bible quote at the front. I don't know if the guy was Christian, but they certainly intended to put it in terms of something that would make sense to Christians. Well, there are these categories. There's extrovert, introvert. There's intuitive and sensing. There's thinking and feeling. There's judging and perceiving. And you sort of do this little exam, this little uh, tool they use, and it will tell you if you're an E or an I or an N or an S or a T or a J or an F or a P, and and, uh, you'll get a score. And I'm going to tell you I am, brace yourself, an X, N-F-J. Now, you may be scratching your head thinking, what's an X? You said I and E. Well, an X 
is this weird, obnoxious person who's right in the middle. So what that means is I am forever being misunderstood. I'm forever making someone mad because some days I'm I and some days I'm me. Well, I'm married to a full-time I. And that has been the source of a lot of interesting uh, interaction between me and my wife of 30-plus years. I'm an ex, and she's an off-the-chart I. And let me tell you, it has helped me to know that. Uh, my wife can be the life of the party, but it takes a whole lot of energy for her to do it. And that's, that's helped me in my marriage and helped me and Leslie both to kind of understand each other. And how do we process information? Well, I'm an off-the-chart in, intuitive, off-the-chart I am so good at reading between the lines, I often fail to read the lines. <laughs> and Leslie is excellent at reading the lines. And we work well together. That's been helpful for me to know that. And I'm a, we're, we're, she's a thinker, I'm a feeler. I, I lead with feelings. I interpret life with feelings. Leslie thinks about things. And I, we're both judgers. She's an I-S-T-J. We're both J's. Uh, I'm a J. That means we kind of have respond to structures. And a P, a perceiving person, is someone who's free and easy and doesn't have a lot of problem with, you know, changing the schedule and moving around. Both of us are J's. Anyway, I tell you all that. I tell you all that only because people deal with life and situations, information, at a very core level differently. That's how God made us. One of the things I love to tell Leslie is I don't want her to feel as though she has to be Miss Social Butterfly for me. That's the kind of job I have asks a lot of her that way. It does not come easily to her. And I've told her, I said, relax, darling. I love you exactly the way you are. And you do not have anything to prove to me. And that's been liberating for us. And when we realize at just this basic level we're different, it, there can be a lot, of, a lot of healing. It can help us with situations and conflict of various kinds. So one of the reasons there's conflict is we're different. Paul was different from Barnabas. Paul was different from Peter. It's a reality in the Christian life. Another reason we have conflict, I think, is because we're limited in what we know. We're not omniscient. There's some really smart people in this room. None of us is omniscient. There are things we don't know. There are facts missing from our understanding. We, we think we know a situation, but we're actually missing a whole part of the story. And when we find out the rest of the story, it makes a little more sense to us. And so one of the reasons there's conflict is because we always operate with information deficit. Even if you have all the information, you can't process all the information. And so, therefore, there's, there's conflict in families and churches. And finally, you know why there is conflict? Because every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us. There is no church that doesn't have rampant brokenness, rampant sinfulness of one kind or another. We're all sinful. We're all bent in our ability to understand situations because 
we always interpret them in terms of our experience and what makes sense to us. And, and uh, it, it, can, it can lead to hyper-defensiveness. It can lead to hyper-aggressiveness. It can, it can lead to all kinds of difficulties in communicating because we're sinful. And, and so it's no surprise, is it, that you look at the church and you see conflict. Over the whole history of the church, there is conflict. So conflict is real. So how, second point, how does the church respond? How the church responds is part of what we're meant to learn here, I think, in Acts 15. Now let's be honest, sometimes we respond poorly. I don't think there's anyone in the room that's ever handled conflict perfectly. I know I haven't. We sometimes respond poorly, and the Bible includes Lots of indications, not just in the New Testament. Go back to the Old Testament. You want to read about dysfunction and responding to conflict poorly, try killing your son or, 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 or doing some act of violence like we read in David's life who, who did all kinds of things and responded in all kinds of unhealthy ways. We respond poorly. But, but every once in a while, we respond to conflict in a way that promotes health. I think one of the reasons Acts 15 is here is because here's a little glimpse of the church responding to conflict in a way that promoted health. I mean, in in some ways it's so simple. Verse 6, look at chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together, together to consider this matter. That may strike you as a throwaway line. I don't think there's something more significant than that in this whole chapter. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider it. One of the ways to respond to conflict is to run away. The healthy way, the better way, the Christian way is to draw near. It's actually during conflict when we most need to draw near to one another. So, how the church responds, when it's behaving like the church, it will draw near. And over and over again, you'll see glimpses of this real conflict and people really trying to draw together in Christ. Um, next Saturday, Susan Smith and the women of Metrocrest are hosting an event on Saturday morning. Ladies, I want to extend in behalf of the church the most sincere invitation for you to come and be a part of this gathering that Susan has organized with Rachel Vincel. Rachel is another counselor, an excellent counselor, who's uh, well known to us at Metrocrest. Rachel's going to be here with us. And you know what she's going to be here to talk about? She's going to be here to talk about the fruit of conflict, the fruit of trauma, the fruit of, of things not going the way they should. This actually involves our church. It involves leadership at the church. The most, one of the more recent examples of conflict that was devastating for many people. There, there are people in this room who were devastated by that. So one of the ways we respond to that reality, and we haven't, because of COVID and other things, we, we, we're, we're slower at getting to this than we should have been. But with the leadership of the women of the church, we're drawing together. And this is the first of what may be additional meetings where we will draw together and uh, there will not be men in the room. This is for the Christian 
members of MetroCrest who are women to have some time without the distractions that having men in a room when you're talking about something touchy, uh, they're going to have the chance to talk about it and pray together and share love for one another. So these are, that's a healthy thing to do. That's an Acts 15. Very different event, but it's an Acts 15 kind of thing. It's the, the impulse in the Christian life to respond to conflict by consciously, intentionally pulling aside with one another. And by the way, there's a men's group planned. A couple of guys said, hey, don't forget about us. Uh, we handle conflict much worse than women. Uh, we handle trauma much worse than women. And uh, so several guys have said, we, we'd like to have an opportunity to do the same thing. I think that's a healthy response to conflict. I'm so sorry that it ever happened. So sorry that people were hurt, but they were. And you can either deal with that by running away or denying or pretending it didn't happen, or you can respond to it by pulling together and doing the best you can to love one another and help one another. And that's our goal next Saturday from 10 to noon here at the church. I know Susan would love to talk to you about it if you want to know more. How the church responds. Point three, how the church decides. Okay, we've got conflict. How does the church in a time of conflict decide? Now, I've got to tell you, um, I have gone to great lengths so that today, on Sunday, November the 13th, we're actually coming together with a prime example of how do we decide. That we've got some questions in the life of our church, some important things to talk about. How do we decide? I'll tell you, a bad, a bad response is not to decide. <laughs> well, that's sometimes the way we handle conflict is we just keep kicking it down the road, and that's not healthy. You run out of road or you run out of can. You, you, you want to deal with issues that need to be discussed. You want to decide something. And I think MetroCrest is going through a season where we're having to decide a whole lot of things. I'm, I'm so grateful for our elders who put up with me, my imperfections, my newness, put up with me, and we work together to try and resolve the issues that we need to resolve. Uh, there is not a, a perfect person among us we're all sinners. We're all different. But we pull together and we try to decide. And I think Acts 15 gives us a couple of principles about that. Uh, look at verses 6 to 12 again. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. He makes his case interesting his case here is a little different from what Paul says about his case over in Galatians 2 but here as Luke records it Peter contributes to the discussion he gets involved and I, I love the way look, look down the page verse 12 this is uh, interesting to me all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul that idea of listening Speaking your mind, 
honestly, clearly, and listening. That's, that is a very important aspect of how the church decides. It is essential that we listen to one another. It's not optional. It's not just a nice thing to do. It is absolutely essential that we learn to listen to one another, especially in conflict. That's often when it's the hardest thing to do is to listen. We, we pull up all the drawbridges. We batten the hatches. We close the windows. We don't want to listen. We don't want to engage. The church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, the apostles and the elders, they listened. And you can ask Diane. You can ask uh, Rachel themselves. They will all tell you that one of the most important things you can do in a time of conflict is to listen. That does not come easy to me. I don't think it comes easy to most of us, but it does not come easy to me. And yet we see a little picture of it here on one of the most momentous debates the church could possibly have, though certainly the most momentous, momentous debate the church had had so far. And over and over again, there's this idea of listening. This idea of listening as people speak. Look down at verse 13. After they finished speaking, that is after uh, Barnabas and uh, Paul finished speaking, uh, James replies, brothers, listen to me. Listen. How does the church decide? Well, step one under Christ is to listen to one another with respect, as much patience as we can muster. Step one. And then what is step two? Look down at verse 15. James, the brother of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, says, it is written. And he quotes from an Old Testament prophet named Amos, chapter 9, verses 11 to 12, to help the church in Antioch, the church in Jerusalem, the church around the world, to make the most momentous decision they've had to make. Where did they turn? They turned to the Bible. Because it's God's word, ultimately, that contains the answer. And we have to listen to each other to find it. We have to listen carefully to each other. We will sometimes have to listen to competing Bible verses. But we acknowledge God's word is how we decide. A few years ago, I went to my very first Presbytery meeting here in North Texas Presbytery. I was still an Anglican when I went. And it happened to be the most conflicted, controversial uh, Presbytery meetings we've ever had. And uh, I went into the meeting, and, and uh, it was about someone getting approved for reception into the diocese. And I'm uh, sorry, my Anglicanism just showed uh, into the presbytery, and it was very controversial. Were you there, Colin? No, weren't there? Uh, I was there for it, and it was, it was pitched. The intensity of the feelings on both sides and the intensity of the arguments made and and one brother would open the Bible and quote this verse. Another brother would open the Bible and quote this verse. And they would pray. And we prayed half a dozen times during the debate, trying to figure this out. And it was, it was a heated exchange. Nobody was ugly, but it was heated. 
And after the meeting, as, as everybody was leaving, one of the guys who was a friend of mine came up to me and said, Bill, I'm so sorry that your first presbytery meeting that you've ever been to in your whole life was that one. I've never been to a presbytery meeting like that. It was so intense. I'm so sorry that you had to see all that. I said, you know what? It was beautiful to my eyes. Because I had spent 25 years in a different denomination where the Bible wasn't welcome in the debate. And where prayer was the formal addition to the service. It wasn't something we did in the course of actually trying to engage a topic of controversy. It was beautiful to my eyes. And I'll tell you, ever since then, I'm not exaggerating, every single Presbytery meeting I've been to, and there have been some heated ones, not that heated, but we've had some heated meetings. We've dealt with touchy pastoral issues. We had a special Presbytery meeting just a few weeks ago uh, involving a session and a, a church member who doesn't agree with the session's choice. We had an entire Presbytery meeting to talk about it. Some of you were there. We were debating it. So I've been to some heated meetings, but I will tell you this, and this is something I am so grateful for in the PCA. Every single person in the room wanted to listen to every other single person in the room. Everybody wanted to pray. And everybody in the entire discussion believed with all their heart in the authority of the Bible, the trustworthiness of the Bible, the power of the Bible. I, I tell you what, brothers and sisters, God can work with that. God works with that. That is, that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And we have debates that I, I'm thinking to myself, and we may be coming into a season of this. We may be coming into a season of this. The stated clerk said we are, and we'll see. We may be coming into a season with, where this is going to test us. But I believe with those dual commitments to prayer and listening and, and, and opening the Bible and really trusting God's word and really seeking with all of our hearts to submit to God's word, I believe the greatest days for the PCA are ahead of us, not behind us. So that's how the church decides, which leads us finally to how the church moves on. How does the church move on? How did the church in Jerusalem and Antioch move on? Well, James gave his Bible-based decision. It turns out to be the Bible-based decision that resulted in you and me being here. And he called for something really beautiful. Look, look, uh, let's look back up at verse 22. It says, It seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And I just want you to focus on the first few words of this letter because I think they're key. The letter reads this, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. How does the church move on? The church moves on by recognizing the 
relationship of love that is placed between us, not because we're exactly alike, not because we have the same backgrounds, not even because we may speak the same language. The reason we can go forward together is because of the bond of love that has been placed between us by the Holy Spirit drawing sinners like you and me to Jesus. And in just a minute, we're going to gather around this little table and we're going to be thinking about what unites you to me and me to you and us to us and us to Christians around the world. It's, it's not a commitment to a political agenda. It's not a commitment to a cultural agenda. Those may vary. What unites us is a commitment to Christ and a deep gratitude for what Christ has done for us. And that's enshrined in this letter. Brothers to brothers. Brothers and sisters to brothers and sisters. That's how the church moves forward. Submitted to the Bible, listening to one another, trying to understand one another, praying together, and leaning into that love which Christ has placed between us. That's, that's how we move on. We move on through koinonia. I had to slip in a Greek word. Uh, there's a Greek word. It means sharing, partnering, fellowshipping, communing. Communion is a picture of koinonia. All of that is how we move on. We move on in Christ, fellowshipping, sharing, partnering, communing with one another in Christ. And then one last thing. I, just, I do want to point this out because I, honestly, I've read this passage many times over the years. And there's one thing I don't understand, uh, at least one thing. And it's, it's the specifics of what the church in Jerusalem wrote. Now, they've just heard these amazing uh, presentations by Peter and Paul about the, the grace of God and we're saved by the grace of God. And, and I, I would love to have heard that the church in Jerusalem responded with uh, a quote from Martin Luther. You know, that if some saved by grace through faith, that would have been a magnificent response. And I believe they believe that. I believe that Paul persuaded them, Barnabas persuaded them, Peter persuaded them. But it's interesting, that's not what James says. Twice. Luke records it twice in different orders, but he records it twice. Look what the letter actually says. He says, since we have heard, this is over in verse 24, since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and uh, send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Saul, men who have Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word and mouth. Verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. There's some requirements. Verse 29, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, i got to tell you, when I read those words, and I've read them many times, it sounds to me like he gives them a little checklist, right? A, a, reduced, a reduced checklist. 
And that James is saying, okay, it would be really good if you, if you would obey these requirements. Check, 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 check. And I've read it that way every time I've ever read it until this week. And something dawned on me. What James is actually saying here is not summing up his theology of salvation, which I am convinced was you're saved by grace through faith. Now, he may have added some Jewish words around that, but I believe that's what James wound up believing. I believe that's what the church has always taught, and I, I think that's what Paul talks, what Peter says here very explicitly. But what James actually does is this. Siding with the Gentile Christians, siding with their conviction that Paul and Peter had just argued that we are saved by grace through faith, siding with that argument, he basically says, don't forget the Jews. Don't forget the Jews. Moses was taught, he says, in every synagogue. There are Jews everywhere you go. There will be Jews. Don't forget the Jews. Don't get so caught up that you forget the mission of the church, which is to reach people with the gospel, Gentile and Jew. He gives them basically an outline of the kind of things that would have repulsed Jews. Things that would be relatively simple in that time and that age to avoid food of and sacrificed idols, blood, sexual immorality that does not fit with the Christian witness. Basically, James says, the way you move on from conflict is when you build this koinonia fellowship and you don't forget your mission. You don't forget what has been entrusted to you. You, you never forget the love of Jesus Christ that embraces Gentile and Jew that has a place for anyone who will respond. And that was on James's heart. He was a Jew. He lived in Jerusalem. He, he didn't want the Gentiles to be needlessly offensive. Avoid these simple things. Not because it's going to save you. It doesn't save you to do those things. But do these things so that you won't needlessly offend others to whom God is reaching out through you in Christ. So how does the church move on? It moves on by engaging in the work that Christ has entrusted to us. Well, we're, we're going to gather at the table. Uh, I invite you to pray with me for just a moment. Father, thank you very much for the transparency of your word. Thank you that you show us not only the church's best moments, but the church's most difficult moments, when they're wrestling with the most difficult questions. And thank you for this glimpse into the life of the church in Jerusalem and in Antioch. We pray that your spirit would be at work among us here at Metrocrest, that you would give us grace to really listen to each other, to really uh, together turn to your word and prayer. And uh, Father, please help us to do the work you've given us. Please give us your spirit that we will be bold and faithful witnesses to Jesus in word and deed for his sake. Amen.